if I build a magnificent infrastructure, but it's dark, is it going to be safe for a woman to ride? If I build a parking space for bicycles, but the parking space is not suitable for, say, a bicycle that has been adapted to carry children, is it going to be welcoming to a mother who is opting for the bicycle to transport her children? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sport, Social Justice, and Development podcast. Uh, this is a podcast that aims to critically explore the utility of sport and other forms of physical activity, recreation, and leisure used around the world for developmental pursuits. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Isra Iqbal, and in this episode, we are here with Sergio and Paula to engage in a creative discussion about the release of their new book chapter, Making Space for Cycling, which is part of the recently published Rulage Companion to Cycling. So just a little bit about myself. Uh, I have recently graduated from kinesiology and health science at York University, and I also completed my independent undergraduate study with Dr. Lindsay Hayhurst, and I'm also a part of uh, their uh, Dreaming uh, Sports Lab as well. So um, if you guys could tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, maybe Sergio, would you like to start us off? Hi, sure. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for, for inviting us. Uh, my name is Sergio Montero. I'm a, an associate professor uh, at Universidad de los Andes in, in Bogota, Colombia, although I am actually uh, starting a new position at the university as associate professor at the University of Toronto starting uh, July 1st, 2023. Uh, so very exciting to be talking about uh, maybe links between Bogota and Toronto. Awesome. That's great. How are you liking uh, Toronto so far? Uh, well, I'm in Bogota right now, but I was mm -hmm. in Toronto last year. I spent oh, okay. a sabbatical semester there. So I, get, I got to know a little bit the city um, and I'm excited to learn more about it. Oh, well, that's amazing. And well, welcome uh, to coming back here. Um, and Paula, would you like to go next? Sure, thanks so much for the invitation. I'm really excited to, to have this conversation. Um, so my name is Paola Castañeda. I'm an assistant professor at Universidad de los Andes. I'm based in the history and geography department. Um, I'm a geographer by training and I've been researching cycling ever since I st started my postgraduate studies in geography. So very, very keen to talk about our chapter and, and any new ideas that might come up in our conversation. Yeah, no, I'm very excited as well. And that's, uh, that's, that's great. Thank you guys so much for sharing. So uh, as I mentioned before, this uh, podcast is really about um, having a creative and engaging discussion about the book chapter. Um, and as I read the book chapter, I found a lot of the themes that were highlighted uh, throughout the chapter very, very interesting. So with that, um, of course, my curiosity spiked and I have a ton of questions to uh, ask you guys about that. So before we get into some of the questions in our discussion, um, could you guys maybe tell us a little bit about what the chapter is about or even the, the overall book? And any of you are um, free to start. So uh, the Rutledge Companion to Cycling is basically a compendium of the most up-to-date and contemporary research into cycling. But it covers like a wide variety of perspectives from considering cycling in the city, which is the section that our chapter is housed in, uh, to thinking about sports cycling, history of cycling, the links between society and space. So it's a very complete, very big book um, just featuring like magnificent authors who have dedicated most of their lives to doing research about cycling in all of its different aspects. And so the editor has invited Sergio to write about making space for cycling. And he kindly invited me to co-author the chapter with him. Uh, so we had a discussion about, well, what does space mean for us? And what does space for cycling mean for us? And on the basis of that discussion, we crafted this text in which we discussed the different ways that we can understand space um, mm -hmm. from the understanding that space is just not physical space, right? But there's also the space of ideas. Uh, there's also, you know, how we imagine space, what we think space is for, and all of these different things feed into how we can think about making space for cycling. And we knew from the start that we wanted to go beyond discussing infrastructure, right? Like bike lanes. Everybody always just thinks of bike lanes when they think about space for cycling. But there are so many other spaces where 
the possibility to cycle is crafted, right? So mm -hmm. you need public policy to support cycling. So what are those spaces where this public policy is being uh, crafted and imagined and desired? And how can we promote cycling from there? So we wanted to think, you know, sort of push our imagination beyond cycling infrastructure uh, and think about all of the different kinds of spaces that make cycling in the city possible. Right. And um, right. So that those were uh, when we talk about infrastructure, that was also um, a key theme that was coming up in the book chapter. And, and I do agree with you um, on the sense that like whenever we think of bicycling, we always think of bike lanes. Right. Because that's just like a really prominent aspect within our, within our society. So, yes, it's very important to think about um, how we can construct our spaces that in a way could, you know, accommodate everyone and, you know, create new ideas. Um, so thank you so much for sharing. Uh, Sergio, would you like to go next? Yes, so um, as Paula said, uh, yeah, we were invited to write this chapter and I was very um, intrigued by this title, Making Space for Cycling. So this was a given title to us. And, and so that started a very interesting conversation about how can we think about different kind of spaces. And also one important thing is that uh, by combining Paola's research with my research, we've been doing... Um, uh, a lot of studies, but thinking from Latin America, mostly from Bogota, mm -hmm. but also uh, we've done work in, in Mexico and also Chile. So another input, in, important input is that we wanted to think about what does it mean to think about making space for, for cycling when we think about it from Latin America. So I think that's another important thread that it's um, uh, that is an input for this chapter. So it was an interesting collaboration, and I, I was very happy with the with the end results, and, and we hope we can spark um, other discussions. Right. No, 100% agreed. It's all about, I guess you could say, making connections, right? Making connections with one part of the world and, you know, bringing it over or bringing connections with this part of the world and bringing it over there and to see how we could, you know... Um, advance our knowledge and our research on uh, the area. So no, that's great. Thank you guys so much for giving us a little bit of insight into what the book chapter is about and the book overall. Um, so um, I guess we could get into some of the questions. So as I was reading the chapter, uh, a, a constant theme that we kind of briefly just discussed right now was uh, the theme of urban spaces or uh, urbanism in general. So do you guys think that as the population of our communities increase, will it affect the idea of urban cycling and spaces for cycling that involved uh, infrastructural interventions? This is a very interesting question. And even though urban is not part of the title of the chapter, we mm -hmm. very much had that in mind when we were writing about this, because I think that what we're witnessing is uh, an important uh, increase in the number of people um, that live in cities, no? So we're mm -hmm. so a lot of cities in the world, especially in the global south, uh, are growing. And in that gr urban growth, we really need to pay attention to how can we make these new cities or these new parts of the city um, able to promote uh, people moving in bicycles, no? And, and I think that in that discussion, it's important also to not just think that the bicycle is going to be, you know, the only means of tra transportation because that would be very uh, ambitious, but also that would be probably not very uh, realistic. So I think it's important to think about how can we think about these spaces for cycling in a way that are also spaces of intermodality. You know? How can we think about the connection, like all these cities, especially in the South, are going to be growing. So how can we connect uh, the different parts of the cities of the city in a way that it's uh, it involves different means of transportation, but in, in the way in which sustainable modes of transportation, that means walking, uh, biking, but also public transportation are well connected so that we are not just like investing in the spaces for cycling and then forgetting about other spaces. You know? So I think it's really important to think about this notion of um, how can we connect these spaces for cycling with other sustainable spaces for moving around the city. Right. And I agree. I feel like it's very important for us to keep in mind um, and to accommodate, I guess, everyone's transportation needs when we're building our communities. Right. And um, right. Just to not leave anyone out. Building on that, of course, as cities grow larger in population, I think we can expect them to also grow in area coverage. 
And I think that's where it becomes important to consider what Sergio was saying. How do we connect these different systems so that we have the possibility of intermodality, right? So I can ride my bicycle to the nearest public transportation hub, park it there safely, and then take public transport to my site of study or my workplace or wherever it is that I'm going. Because of course it is unrealistic and a lot of the time uh, cycling detractors mock people like us saying, mm -hmm. well, you can't expect everyone to cycle if, if you need to cycle, I don't know, 20 kilometers, how is that feasible? And of course, that's not the intent. I think the intent is to show people that cycling is possible and that it makes sense. It especially makes sense in a context where cities are growing and the world is becoming, you know, majority urban, or it's already become majority urban. Um, so how do we avoid that majority urban world of becoming trapped irreversibly in automobility? And I think that's where the bicycle and public transportation and walking and all of these other active travel options become important. Um, so of course, it's going to require thinking cycling as part of a system that is not just an urban transportation system, but the city as a system, right? So how do we articulate pro-cycling policy with land use policy and with housing policy so that people can effectively use their bicycles to move around, not fall into automobility and this endless black hole of building highways that bring about more cars, but actually respond to the pressing need of making sustainable cities for the majority of the world that is already living in cities. Right, and that's a very interesting um, idea that you bring up sustainable cities, right? And I think that at least in, in my community, so I live in Brampton, and what I see now that in, uh, because the population of Brampton is increasing, you know, immigration is increasing in general, um, I see a lot of the communities that are being built very small, very tiny, it accommodates like, let's just say a handful of people, right? And of course, if like a community small, you're going to have limited infrastructure, we're going to have limited, um, you know, transportation routes or um, infrastructure for transportation in general. Some of the communities don't really have those uh, like uh, bus uh, posts, right, where like um, individuals can like, you know, wait for buses, they'll have to go outside their community, and they'll have to go find that um, like, like that bus post. And so some of them don't even have like, you know, um, yeah, safe cycling um, infrastructure or uh, like, you know, lanes that promote safe cycling for uh, individuals. So as I guess you could say, um, our wider community moves forward to accommodate uh, the increase in uh, our population, how do you think we could um, combat this issue? How do, you, how do you think that we could spread awareness on this issue and um, really advocate for it? I, I also would like to add something here because this um, this discussion about what is a sustainable city or what is sustainable sustainability in general, no? What, what we think about cities and normally there's also another way of thinking that has been promoting, for example, electric vehicles a lot, no? Like so we are now witnessing a lot of like oh you know electric vehicles are the future like we, but in the reality so obviously electric vehicles are less polluting than. Um, than um, normal vehicles or like uh, um, vehicles that are moved by um, petrol. But the, on the other hand, electric vehicles do not solve many problems that we have when we have be, been building since the mid of the 20th century cities around the automobile. So like electric vehicles are going to be creating congestion. Electric vehicles still are going to require a lot of spaces in our cities. and electric vehicles are still going to be promoting this mode of urbanization and suburbanization that we've been witnessing in the last 70 or 80 years. No? So I think that it's important to think about uh, not, just the not just the technology that we're using to move us around the city, but also the effect that a particular means of transportation has. So in that way, when thinking about active modes of transportation, like walking, like bicycling, um, like massive public transport, then we're not just like using a different technology. We're also thinking about a different kind of city. And I think that is also very important. It's what Paola mentioned before, the connection between transportation, land use, and density. You know? Sometimes we forget that uh, if we just change a technology, if we just change uh, to electric vehicles, you know, yeah, there's going to be less less pollution but there's going to be other problems like the real problems of the city also it's about having these cities made 
um, for automobiles and how all the space they take, all the congestion that is created, and all the long distances that we rely on. So anyway, so thinking about that, I think it's important to go beyond this idea of technology uh, solutionism and go and thinking more about what kind of city do we want? How can we build cities where we can easily walk and bike and have everything that we need around in a, in a short distance or in a short period of time? Right. And uh, with that, do you guys think that um, electric vehicles that are very popular now, right? Like you see many people like, you know, driving electric cars. In my community, I see a lot of like electric scooters or bikes, you know, like um, kids are always usually like uh, using them and uh, playing on them uh, with their friends and stuff. Do you think that our communities will try to incorporate like our current communities or you know, new communities that are being built, do you think that electric vehicles will start to take precedence over and our traditional way of transportation will be lost? So I think I think this is an issue that requires, I think, a lot of nuance in the debate because it's one thing to talk about an electric-assisted bicycle and a very different thing to talk about electric cars, right? Uh, and as Sergio was mentioning earlier, just electrifying all of the cars that we have in our cities is not going to solve a host of other issues that automobility causes, right? So I think it's important that we conceptualize sustainability, not just as non-pollution, uh, but also as an equitable way of living and organizing our environment and organizing ourselves within that environment. And as a geographer, I, I have like this frame of mind where I'm always thinking about, okay, so what does this mean in different scales? And one of the things that I find worrying about this excitement over these electric technologies um, is that we are still causing some form of harm elsewhere. So we're not dependent on oil anymore, but we are depending on exploiting lithium for batteries uh, in a very specific part of the world, which is in, in the north of Chile, Argentina and Bolivia. So what does it mean for, for example, for Toronto to have clean air when the communities that live in the desert up in the north of Chile and Argentina uh, don't have water because it's become polluted by lithium extraction. So that's something that, I, that I'm always debating with people about. Um, and just because I'm critical in that sense, it doesn't mean that I don't recognize how, for example, electric bicycles do have the potential to encourage people to take up traditional cycling or to encourage people to become more active. So you see a lot of papers nowadays and, and research coming up talking about how electric bikes and, and especially electric bikes, not, not necessarily scooters, do promote physical activity uh, amongst people who would otherwise be very sedentary. Uh, you see how, for example, an electric assisted bicycle can facilitate the transportation of children uh, or things, you know, uh, you know, you go to the supermarket, you have this heavy load, it's much easier to carry it around in an electrically assisted bicycle. Or if you live in a place that is very hilly, well, that can encourage a shift so that people no longer ask this question like, okay, but how am I going to get up this massive hill that my house is on? So it actually does tackle a lot of the, I guess, excuses that people make to not massively take up cycling, but it does have some nuances that I think that we still need to be mindful of. Um, and so when I talk about thinking about sustainability, not just in terms of non-pollution, but also um, equity and justice, I'm also thinking about how these electric systems are distributed globally, right? Because they're massively being taken up in Europe and other parts of the global north. But I think here in Latin America, we're still quite far away from taking up these technologies and also the infrastructural changes that they require, right? Like charging stations, uh, you know, how do you, how do you put out all the wiring and all the other infrastructure that is required for this to work. Um, and I'm afraid that might generate some like global inequalities or perpetuate global inequalities in terms of, for example, who is to blame for climate change or who is doing their part to tackle things like climate change. Right, right. So I feel like the when we think about, um, I guess the main idea here is that when we think of uh, urbanism and urban spaces, it's a lot of the time it's facilitated by technology, right? So let's just say, like you mentioned, Paula, where where we're into implementing like electric vehicles here because, you know, now our technology is advanced, but we're actually hurting a different part of the world, right? So just because we can have clean air or, you know, our climate in, in some ways is regulated, 
why does that have to be the expense of another community's climate? You know what I mean? So no, that's that's very um, key insight. So um, if we come away from uh, physical spaces and infrastructure, another thing that I never thought about before when we think about cycling spaces was uh, one of the claims that the chapter actually made, and I'm just going to read it uh, word from word. Um, so the chapter says, we should not underestimate digital spaces in their capacity to influence the process of making physical space for cycling. Um, I found this very interesting, and I just really wanted any one of you to comment a little bit further on this statement when we think about digital spaces and cycling. Yeah, sure, I can I can comment on that, and that's actually very much it's come up in in my research on different occasions. And one of the uh, my research, uh, I've been doing a lot of research about how, for instance, Bogota uh, by, uh, bicycle policies have traveled to other parts of the world, and how other cities have replicated um, Bogota's policies. So, and one of the things that I found out in this, in this research, and, and there's a lot, I mean, there's like, I don't know, 400 cities that have, for instance, um, uh, referenced Bogota to implement like a Ciclovia initiative, like a, like a street closure um, initiative. And so one of the things that I uh, found out in that research is how it's so important the stories that we tell about other cities and how the images and uh, that circulates around the world about particular how cities are are doing this or that initiative like that has become so important i mean it's, it was always important not to think about in a way whatever you do in your city is always influenced by ideas that are circulating no that's always been the case but i think that we're in a very interesting moment where those are those ideas that about what good what a good city should be that used to come mostly from Europe or or North America. No, that, that we're looking at like what London or what Madrid or what Barcelona or New York was doing as the the, the horizon of imagination of what the cities should do. Now these ideas are coming from all different kind of places. No, and so the digit so the the digital space has become this important uh, space where one can see or one can watch a video, one can hear a podcast, or one can see images of what is going on in different cities around the world. So I think that there's a moment in which there's a, in, in, there's a I like the English expression for this, which is this idea of, of having an eye-opening moment. No? So when you see something and then you realize that this is possible. And this normally happened before when you travel to another city. So that's why this is always so important no? when uh, mayors or urbanists or planners or activists travel from one place to another because the moment when they see something, like let's say a different way in which a city has organized uh, bicycle infrastructure, but it could also be like beyond infrastructure. It could also be like, I don't know, bike repair shops, for instance. The moment when you see them and experience yourself this is a very important moment of experiential learning, right? That used to be that it was that you had to be there to experience yourself and then carry it with you to your home city. But now with digital spaces and the and the easiness in which one can circulate images, videos, um, so that has become also very uh, a way of doing activism, no? About producing particular videos about what a city is doing or uh, circulating particular images and narratives become a very powerful um, force of change for other cities. So that is something that we wanted to, that is something that I've done research a lot and, and that is something that we wanted to put in this chapter very clearly. Like how can we think about these digital worlds as a particular kind of space where change also happens? Right. And that was a very um, thoughtful insight on that. And I feel like when we think about social media and digital spaces, well, you know, nowadays, everyone has a computer, a phone, everyone has like, you know, an Instagram, a Facebook, a Twitter, you know, whatever it may be, right, that they um, mostly use. Um, and I feel like um, what I was kind of also getting from the chapter in terms of digital spaces was that everyone has some sort of or some type of story to tell right and digital spaces allow us to tell that story and if we think about cycling um well you know there there are some people out there who do sh share their experiences cycling or you know they'll, they'll like post a little picture like you know of them on their bike and i guess that kind of like just increases or it kind of like 
invokes curiosity in their viewers or in their followers, right? So I feel like that way, it's also a very good strategy for advocacy when it comes to cycling and stuff. Um, so yeah, and Paula, would you like to say anything about digital spaces? Sure. So I have two points about digital spaces. The first one really links to what you were just saying and what Sergio was discussing, uh, because in fact, social media and digital spaces have been one of the key ways in which cycling activists across Latin America have been able to connect and make things happen. So my research was precisely about how activists from different cities sort of enter into dialogue with one another and produce a common discourse, a common sense amongst themselves that allows them to mobilize cycling in their respective cities. And without a doubt, social media has played a huge role in this. So in, in the interviews I conducted, a lot of people would mention, you know, the early days where it was just, you know, a mailing list or these very rudimentary Yahoo websites where people started posting about the possibility of cycling and why don't we organize and do something and, and claim some space or some sort of policy in our cities back in the 90s. So that was there from the very beginning in, in, in some sense. And nowadays, I agree with Sergio, it, the images, the videos, the testimonies that circulate on the internet are part of what makes cycling desirable for people and it makes and it allows people to communicate their testimonies why do i like cycling what do i enjoy about cycling how is cycling possible in this city and one of the questions i was also asking myself during my research was you know transport and mobility is such a local issue like every city sort of like the problematic in, in abstract is sort of the same but the specificities of each city tend to be you know different right but how is it possible that we can share a common narrative and a common language? And one thing that I found striking was in the case of women who were starting to communicate with one another and identifying these things that were common experiences across all kinds of cities, big and small capital cities, smaller cities, women were starting to thread together this narrative about the experience of cycling as a woman. And that goes beyond the particularity of any one city or space. It goes beyond the specific problems of transport systems in any specific city. And it actually becomes a systemic issue, right? So we can talk about that later, but that is something that I found striking, the way that social media enabled this digital space of women finding each other to, you know, find links that enabled them to make different claims about cycling that were not about, you know, we need more infrastructure. It was about why do we experience harassment while cycling and how and why and why is it that this is common across sites? Um, and the second point I wanted to make is that digital, the digital increasingly mediates our experience of the city, right? It's very rare nowadays that you will go out and wander around and step into a restaurant that you've thought looked interesting from outside. You've go through Google Maps and you look up, you know, which place has the best reviews, et cetera. So the digital is such a central experience, uh, such a central part of our urban experience. And policymakers know this, right? So earlier I was speaking to Sergio about how important it is to consider how the, this datafication of cities plays into cycling, how different bike sharing systems are collecting data about what kinds of trips people make, where are they going, where are they coming from, how long are they spending on these trips. And I think that is going to become more and more important as these systems become more widespread, especially here in Latin America, where they're not as common as in other parts of the world. But I think it's important to think about how data is, is going to play a role in making space for cycling and the space that cycling has, you know, in, in this data governance. Yeah, can I, can I add something? Yeah, can I add something else? Because I think that another important part of this uh, increasingly complex puzzle that is the, the, the way in which the digital world or data is becoming more and more uh, present in our lives is that also to understand that not you know there's a lot of images ideas stories that are in the internet let's say but not all of them circulate no so i think that for me that has also been a very interesting question about right now mo a lot of people have phones a lot of people can just like make a video or photos and they can certainly you know upload it to their twitter to their instagram to their facebook but that doesn't mean that that's going to put that idea, that image, that video, that story into circulation in a way that makes it viral no? or that, or that reaches a lot of people. So 
I think it's important to think about also the sort of like the power relations that are now behind what makes it to your Instagram uh, account, like what makes it to the screen of your phone is not everything, right? So what are the new ways in which these images of the city, of the idea of the good city or the idea of what is a good bicycle policy, for instance, who is controlling that? No? So I think that we should also think about the digital space, not just as a space of mobility and circulation, but also as a way in which certain things move and circulate, but others, even though might be really good ideas or really good images or really good stories, they do not circulate. So I think that in thinking in why one th some ideas circulate and others don't, it's a, also an interesting way of thinking about what, what is going on in this new wor digital world and what are new uh, power relations that are being reproduced in this world. Right, and that's an excellent point. And when it comes to... Um thinking about how, why some stories or some content circulates more than others. And as you mentioned, why some things go viral and, you know, other things, unfortunately don't, I feel like it's, and this kind of like, I guess, um, really does relate to the data process as well, like the algorithms in our phones, right? Mm -hmm. So um, the algorithms are always very, very specific. Sometimes they're individualized, sometimes they're generalized, right? So I feel like when we think about that, like the algorithms that you see on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, I think in a way it kind of like, picks and chooses what it wants us to see or what it kind of like wants the great the overall community to see so I feel like you know when I guess we're getting a bit more <laughs> technological but I, I feel like that does have a, a part to play in when we think about what goes viral and, and what doesn't so according to that now um, if we compare the digital spaces how do our digital spaces uh, enhance our physical spaces for cycling Um, wow, that, that's a difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one 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 answer that I could say to that is um, is that the, what we see that is circulating uh, in these digital spaces uh, have an influence in what our decision makers um, mm -hmm. do. So that's I think to me that's the more clear link. Probably there's a lot of links, no? That uh, in terms of, for instance, like what kind of bicycles do we like, no? What, what kind of bicycles are uh, more desired or others. But for me, mm -hmm. this question has been more in terms of like, how does, for instance, how, could, how, how can we make, um, how can we persuade a mayor to implement something and mm -hmm. based on what other cities are doing or based on what is circulating in, in, in these digital spaces. And I have, I have one, one research that I did, I have one paper where I explore how, for instance, uh, in San Francisco, they started doing a street closure program every, uh, mm -hmm. like a weekly, not every week, but like it was about 10 or 11 uh, weeks a year. It's called Sunday Streets. And mm -hmm. this is a program um, that they started in San Francisco in 2008 based on Ciclovia, on Bogota's mm -hmm. Ciclovia program. And, but what it was interesting about all this is that when I started doing re qualitative research about this like how because i was very intrigued by this idea how come that a city in the u.s in california would reference and would make a change in their policies based on a policy in bogota no? in colombia mm -hmm. so i was very interested about this question so i started to talk and interview a lot of people and then i and i ended up with this finding that is that the mayor of, of san francisco at the time had seen a video of like mm -hmm. bicycle activists have been talking and talking to the mayor and to different planners and, and local policymakers. Like we should do this. We should like have this street closure program in San Francisco every week. And everyone was like, well, yeah, we'll see. Um, and then there was this eye opening moment where the mayor of San Francisco watched this video that was made by some bicycle activists from New York that came to Bogota and did this video. But these arrived in San Francisco and when the mayor saw it, mm -hmm. it was like, oh, okay, now I understand that. So we should do this. And so that's a story, you know, it's an anecdote, but in mm -hmm. a way it also reflects the ways in which digital space can be connected to how can we persuade our planners, our mayors, our policymakers about the possibility of doing uh, something in the physical space. Yeah, I think there's an additional dimension and it has to do with the ways in which um, the digital and digital technologies are changing the face of work 
And I think one of the most visible ways in which this is happening is this platform labor and these uh, delivery platforms that are cropping up everywhere around the world. And they're suddenly making people on bikes highly visible, probably more than ever before. Um, so obviously this has generated a fleet of workers riding across cities, delivering food, things, messages, etc. Um, I, I obviously come to this from a very critical perspective. Who are these workers and how are these algorithms and, and data labor um, configuring oppressive labor regimes, right? But I think that it's something that we can't deny. Like the space of the city is being, you know, it's dotted with people on bicycles. Um, but I don't think that they're very well taken care of or well, you know, included in the labor market. So I think that's one issue that, that obviously we don't mention in the chapter because there's so much that we could say in such little space. But I think that this is something that bicycle activists and policymakers who deal with cycling have to tackle at some point. If these digital platforms are here to stay and these precariously placed workers are here to stay, how can we make it so that their work conditions are not as awful as they tend to be in most of the world? Right. So um, what we can get from that is that our digital spaces heavily, heavily influence um, uh, our phys- uh, they do they heavily influence our uh, policy making or they um, the, they're a big message to, you know, like the authorities and government. Um, and I guess you could say anyone who has a, a huge say within what's going on in our communities. Right. So with that, um, like Sergio mentioned, um, that when we see something online and let's just say it goes viral, big chances are that um, policymakers and people with high power um, like in in the government will also see it. And then according to them, they could always make the decision on what happens in our community, right? So again, that power relation thing that Sergio, you also mentioned also comes into play. And Paula, you make interesting, very great points as well. And we're also, we just want to add more thing to this is that we're now talking about bicycle and, you know, but this is, happens also in other realms of policy, right? So it, this also is known by, I don't know, car makers or uh, manufacturers. So that so we also have this constant battle of images of what does it mean to, to you know, what, who should be in the space of the city, you know? So and if you see, for instance, like advertisements of cars, it's always very very vague no they is they're selling you like the idea the desire to drive a car is not so much that they're selling you the technical characteristic of a car no so it's so this is a let's say a battle that is being played by different all kind of different actors that are trying to get our attention which is increasingly dispersed <laughs> with social media no and so it's about also like how different ways of uh, of competing for what should be in this what what is a good city and what should be in that space of the city right right um and i agree on that point as well so uh throughout our discussion uh to this point um we we didn't mention this uh directly but it, it was uh talked about very uh, briefly um uh, bicycle hubs Right. So within the province of Ontario and the greater Toronto area, um, there are many bicycle bicycling organizations and bicycle hubs um, that focus on bike repair. Right. And many of these organizations, they tackle the issue of gender inequity and they incorporate women into what is a stereotypically a male space. Right. And this is something that the book chapter mentions as well. So could you guys. elaborate on how this chapter gives a new perspective into tackling the issue of gender inequity. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, as you correctly identified, some spaces we identify as stereotypically male spaces, which is to say spaces are neutral, right? It's not the same to inhabit different spaces as a woman, as a man, as a cis person or transgender person. So space is profoundly gendered. And that's not just, you know, mechanics workshops, it's the street, right? It's libraries, it's all sorts of spaces. But related to that, cycling is also not neutral. And I've come up against a lot of people who claim, oh, you know, when we're on the bicycle, we're all the same. And that's just not true. You can just ask any woman what her experience of cycling in the city is like, and she will tell you that it's marked by maybe feelings of 
not being safe, harassment, difficult encounters with, you know, men, drivers, etc. So there's a specific experience of cycling when, when you're a woman and it's distinct from cycling when you're a man. Um, so I think it's important when we think about making spaces for cycling that we consider, and, and again, this, this is, this is picking up on something that I said before, that we don't just think about spaces where people can ride their bikes, but where it is safe and desirable and equitable to ride a bike where people not just, you know, not just on the basis of gender, but also race, sexuality, et cetera, all of these factors play into how we experience the city. So I think it's important to not lose sight of that, right? If I build a magnificent infrastructure, but it's dark, is it going to be safe for a woman to ride? If I build a parking space for bicycles, but the parking space is not suitable for say a cargo bike or a, or a bicycle that has been adapted to carry children, is it going to be welcoming to a mother who is opting for the bicycle to transport her children? Uh, I think the new perspective that this brings in comes from how I have come across this issue and how it has been roped into Latin American feminism, which is, I think, quite a distinct leg of this social movement, where there's a strong desire to build political transversality and make these different connections between spaces of women's oppression, but also spaces of women's resistance. Um, and so the question becomes, how do we make mobility a women's issue? And how do we make cycling specifically a women's issue? And I really like a phrase from an organization in the United States called the Untokening. They say that safety is more than protection from cars. And I agree. A lot of the time when cycling policy is being crafted, it's about, you know, how do we segregate this infrastructure so people don't get run over? But safety is also being safe from harassment, being safe from lewd glances, from being attacked, from all of these other horrible things that could happen to people who don't conform to the kinds of bodies that we expect to see in public space. And so I found very generative these different spaces that women are crafting where they can first become confident in their cycling skills because we take for granted that people just know how to ride a bike, right? You have this old saying, build it and they will come. Well, what if they can't come because they can't ride a bike because they never learned how to do so? And what's come up in a lot of the interviews and conversations I've had is that many, especially adult and older women, never learned how to cycle because of the sexist idea that cycling is not for women or that if you ride a bicycle, you're going to lose your virginity and all of these different weird and silly myths that nevertheless have a huge impact on women's lives. So I think cycling schools that are made for women by women sort of try and revert that pattern and they empower especially older women to take up cycling. Um, and they also do something that I think is magnificent and it is that it allows women to feel safe to get it wrong. And a lot of the experiences that we have in community bike shops is that you'll have this man who takes the tools from your hands and shows you how to do things or does things for you, uh, which makes a lot of women hesitant to participate in these kinds of spaces or learn a new skill such as bike repair because you're going to be treated in a condescending way or in a disrespectful way. So I find very powerful these spaces where women can feel safe to get things wrong because that's the only way that you can learn, right? Um, yeah, I was going to say something else, but I've lost, I've lost my, my idea. Oh, no, I remembered. Okay, so it's not just, again, it's not just bike shops and infrastructure, but again, in our chapter, we talk about these less expected spaces for cycling. So how do we make the spaces where decisions are made inclusive for women and gender non-conforming people, right? If I show up to, you know, a town meeting about transportation policy, is it going to be taken for granted that I could possibly know about this as a woman, right? Because transportation, of course, has traditionally been the domain of very specific disciplines who ha which have historically been dominated by men. So how do we make the spaces of decision-making also inclusive for women? How do we make bike sharing inclusive for women? And here I want to point out that in Bogota, a couple of months ago, our bike sharing system was inaugurated. And I know the people working behind it put great effort into how can this system 
serve women. So many of the bicycles have chairs to carry children around. Many of them are electrically assisted. There's cargo bikes that you can rent in this bike sharing system. And all of these things were done thinking about the specific needs of women who undertake care trips or who may want to undertake care trips on the bicycle. Right. And I think it's very important when we think about these spaces is accessibility, right? With accessibility, obviously comes affordability, but I guess affordability could also be um, discussed in a later sense. But to get into these spaces, and it's especially hard, unfortunately, for women in our society, right? So when we think about like bike repair shops, we have to think, or like even bicycles, like in general, we have to think, think, hey, do women have access to it or could could women get easy access to it right and, and if not then we should really you know inform our policymakers on on an issue like this within our society um sergio would you like to add anything well i, I just want to say that it's been incredible like this part of the um reason why i really enjoy writing this chapter with paola is that especially when you write in a co-authorship then new ideas that you would never uh, think about it so uh, come out. No? So I think I am obviously aware of the difference in gender when we think about bicycle, but it was mm-hmm. through writing and thinking about this with Paola that things like this become like more central to our argument. So I think I would just say that it's been a really interesting and productive collaboration when you, and it's very different when you write about something as a man, for instance, if I would have mm-hmm. written this chapter by myself, Yes, probably I would have mentioned uh, some of the gender dynamics, but it was by be, this being a collaboration between the two of us that, um, yeah, more things came up to the chapter. So I think that's been really uh, great. Right. And uh, this chapter um, is excellent in the sense that like new ideas or, or new ideas and new connections are constantly made and new themes are constantly mm-hmm. um, put into the chapter, which is very, very admirable about the, well, one thing that I really liked about this chapter. So since we are on the topic of um, gender uh, equality, the chapter also mentions that, and, and I quote, uh, mechanic mechanics workshops defy gender roles that associate bike, me- bike mechanics with masculinity, and foster women's uh, autonomous mobility through the sharing of skills necessary to fix one uh, one's own bicycle. So how do you think this practice of women being able or having the access to be able to you know, learn and fix their own bikes, how do you think this empowers women? And how do you think this tackles the issue of gender uh, inequality or inequity overall? And what does that mean in our um, dynamic context that we're living in today? Yeah, so I remember very fondly one interview I conducted in which a woman told me, you know, that she had come up with this initiative. She ha- she has a beautiful organization that is focused on girls, right? Which I also think is, is worth highlighting because it's very different to inhabit the world as a woman than it is to inhabit the world as a girl. Um, and one of the things she said was, you know, men are always the owners of the tools, literally the tools to fix a bicycle, but also of knowledge, right, of, of how to do things. And I found that incredibly, an incredibly powerful thing to say, because it, it relates directly to, to the question that you're asking. A lot of the time, we, if, if we have a puncture, we have to rely on a man who knows how to do things and who has the tools to do things. A lot of women don't venture out to cycle or don't des- or decide to not take up cycling because they're afraid of having a mechanical issue that they're not going to be able to fix. This is obviously uh, exacerbated when you think about, you know, what if I get a flat tire in the middle of the night or if it's a very lonely place and I'm by myself. So being able to overcome these barriers is extremely important. Um, and especially because a lot of the cycling activist discourse goes on about the autonomy of the bicycle. But a lot of the people who think about tools and science and technology scholars, and especially the people behind the repair manifesto, have a beautiful phrase that says that if you can't repair it yourself, it doesn't really belong to you. And I think that's that's fantastic to think with. What does it mean to be in control and ownership of your mobility, of your experience of the city, um, related to the ability of being able to fix your own bike. That said, I am the worst mechanic in the world. I don't know how to fix a flat tire, but you know, I, I still go out and do it. So I think there's also something really beautiful that happens with the bicycle, and it's as, as 
the phrase that Sergio was using before, an eye-opening moment, right? A lot of people decide to take up cycling for the first time and they speak about falling in love with it. And it's almost like a, a surreal spiritual experience that they have. And I know maybe in a lot of academic discussions, there's no place to talk about this. And I think that there definitely should be because there are reasons beyond you know, the rational calculation behind why people pick specific modes of transportation. And for a lot of women, choosing the bicycle is the result of having had these experiences of feeling happy, of feeling the wind in your hair, of feeling autonomous in your mobility. So there's a lot of emotion that goes into choosing the bicycle as a mode of transportation. Um, so and especially the idea of autonomy. I don't really like the word empowerment, but it does come up a lot of a lot in discussions about women cycling and it's this idea that the bicycle makes women find a new connection with their bodies, for example, find that their bodies are capable of doing things that they didn't know were possible. Uh, and the more and more you cycle, the more things are possible, the farther you can get, the tougher hills you can climb. And for a lot of, of women, this is an extremely powerful experience, especially if we take into account, as I was saying earlier, that there's a stereotype that cycling is not for women, that the city is unsafe for women. And I think that this enables many of us to challenge these narratives or at least inhabit the city in a very different way and maybe shed fears about what it is like to cycle as a woman in a city. This is not to say that dangers and threats stop existing, but that you relate to space in a different way when you cycle. I think a very uh, key idea here that you bring up is that when, so unfortunately, sometimes um, resources and uh, systems that are implemented within our societies kind of, they don't give women control, right? Or, or they strip that control away from them um, with whatever it is. Um, but as I was reading this section of the chapter, uh, it just kind of came to my mind that this, uh, th that a bicycle kind of allows women to have control or to be in control of something, right? So um, even like, let's just say learning about how to fix a, a fix a bike, um, even though it may seem like such a small thing when, when you talk about it, but when you're actually doing it, it's actually a really big thing, right? Like there's so many things yeah. to consider, right? So it, it's, I feel like uh, it, the aspect of control, having control over something that, hey, you know what, I can do this, this is mine. It is a very important thing when we when you think about it. And, you know, something as well I don't want to say as small but something as like a bicycle really could give um women that and I feel like that's very very important um, especially in our society you know um I'm just thinking about another point from your question that I think is worth speaking about uh, and it's this idea of sharing these skills of women teaching other women either how to cycle or how to repair a bike and I think it's very different when you have this experience of sharing with another woman who has these knowledges, who has these skills that you thought were the domain of men and receiving that knowledge from her. Um, it's very powerful. And, I, and it relates to what I was saying earlier about the specificity of Latin American feminism, where one of the key themes is this idea of finding each other, of breaking out of isolation, of breaking out of this idea that the things that we suffer and the things that we go through only, only, you know, are singularly and individually experienced. And in sharing uh, these spaces and sharing these conversations, you start to realize that it's not just you, but that these experiences are shared by many other women. So crafting these spaces to find each other, to teach each other and to share with one another, whether it is we're sharing knowledge or we're sharing something bad that happened to us or we're sharing something great that happened to us, being able to forge these connections among women has been instrumental for you know building momentum in the feminist movement, but also helping a lot of women break out of situations of violence and patriarchal oppression. So even though we're talking about cycling, I don't think that can be divorced from the personal things that run through these spaces and these conversations and the motivations behind women creating spaces for each other. Well, I was just thinking, it's a very interesting conversation, and I think, I was just thinking that it's also a particular type of man, no, that is the one that has traditionally repaired, like, learned how to repair bikes or, or cars, no, and as a, as a queer man, uh, I also think that for me, in a way, seeing a woman fixing a bike, it's also very, 
it's also very good because many queer men, I think, like I, I remember, like growing up, like I would never know how to repair my bike, and I would be so embarrassed, and I would see like these particular men that I associated with a particular masculinity, that in a way is was intimidating to me at the time. So I think that uh, you know having women uh, leading repairing workshops or you know going to a to a bike shop and have a woman repair your bike it, it can also be actually very uh very good for other kind of masculinities and other kind of men that maybe are a little bit intimidated by this kind of men masculinity that always fix things no so i i was thinking how breaking these gender um roles can also be in a way beneficial for for different kinds of masculinities Right. And I feel like um, what uh, and I feel like from getting from the from from this conversation is that the bicycle could really help us break down, again, like you said, gender roles and systemic bar uh, barriers and stereotypes. Right. Which overall is oh, it only benefits our community. Right. It mm -hmm. only benefits the communities that we live in. Right. So this so, so the bicycle and just having these practices and interventions could it, it it leads to the greater good. It leads to justice and social change. So I think that's very important as well. Um, so another thing uh, that I was very curious about on this topic is, like I mentioned before, so this practice of, you know, um, uh, bike, uh, bike repair or mechanic workshops. Um, so how does this practice or intervention um, that works to promote gender inequity within, uh, you know, our communities in this area, how do you think this influences gender equity on the physical cycling routes so how can we take um so how can we take the messages that we're seeing in our, our bike repair shops um and how can we how can we take those and put them on the physical cycling routes i think a lot of the time what happens in spaces like community bike shops it's not just that you go and you fix your bike and you're done and obviously mm -hmm. this doesn't happen to everybody but it does happen to a lot of people that they start becoming more involved and more interested uh, so that it it doesn't just stop at, you know, I cycle to and from work, but I actually care about the conditions that I'm cycling in. And I actually start to become interested in who is, you know, dictating the policy around cycling in my city and who is making the decisions about this. And I think these are fantastic spaces to precisely get people involved in their communities and get people to start carrying and start to identify that the things that they're concerned about and the things that affect them on a daily basis, they have a name, they have a process, they have, and, they, and that they can get involved in how these things unfold. Um, right. And a lot of these spaces are actually activist spaces, right? right. Um, and as I was saying earlier, this idea of coming together with other people, I think stimulates people to become more involved in these issues and raise new issues that probably weren't there before. So they're very generative spaces in that respect, because you're not there alone toying and tinkering with your bicycle, you're talking to people. And so mm -hmm. things start coming up like the racial disparity in cycling, you know, and why don't we mm -hmm. see more black people cycling, black women right. cycling. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it also enables people to, with shared interests, to find each other and do things and create new organizations. And that ultimately has an effect in what we see out on the street. Whether we're talking about cycling routes as the physical infrastructure, having citizens involved in these decision-making processes and planning processes is important. Or mm -hmm. if we're talking about what we see outside as you know the kinds of interactions that take place, I think that we're seeing more diversity in the kinds of people who cycle. Mm -hmm. And I hope that, that, you know, that continues to increase. And I also hope that attitudes will change towards other cyclists. As Sergio was saying, there's a specific kind of masculinity that becomes reproduced to cycling, not all the time, but a lot of the time. Uh, mm -hmm. And it transfers this idea that the men have to be the fastest, the most mm -hmm. aggressive, the first in line at the, at, the, at the light to start really quickly as soon as it turns green. Uh, and my hope is that we can find a way to enact different kinds of cycling masculinities that are more aligned with the kinds of values that we typically associate with cycling, such as, you know, being happy, taking care of your environment, um, being more mindful of the people that you share the city with. A lot of, mm -hmm. the, a lot of the time, cycling activists remark that the car produces this kind of isolation where you lose touch with the reality mm -hmm. around you. 
and everything around you becomes just an obstacle, right? So is there a speed bump? That's an obstacle. Is there a child? That's an obstacle. Mm -hmm. Whereas cycling sort of sensibilizes you to, to the people and the other kinds of things that you share the city with. And so I would hope that these sort of changing narratives and sort of more politicized discussions that take place at places like community bike shops can translate into a greater sensibility of what it is to share the city and what it is to inhabit the city on the bicycle. Right. And that was a very uh, comprehensive answer. So thank you so much. That was that, that was really uh, well said. Um, Sergio, would you like to add? Uh, no, I think Paula did it very well. Right, right. I feel like uh, you really, um, Paola, you really like took all the aspects and, um, uh, you know, kind of like put it all together very nicely. And just as something to add was, I feel like um, it's also a lot about awareness and education, right? So a lot of these, um, so, so a lot of these organizations, even like bike repair shops and stuff, as we were talking about, they spread awareness, they spread knowledge to the greater society, right? And then when we actually implement those messages on the cycling routes, right? Um, with whoever is taking in that knowledge, let's say, they will know, I guess you could say, like, how to act or how to be respectful of that space. So I feel like that's also very um, important as well, the aspect of awareness and knowledge. So as we just conclude our discussion, the last question is very dear to me because um, it's about policy and advocacy and policymaking. And that's very um, dear to my heart, just a very big topic that I love to explore. So can you guys give us some examples of uh, bicycle policies or policy models that have been implemented within the local and global communities that have influenced these cycling spaces or will influence current, uh, future cycling spaces? Um. Yeah, I can start. And I think I've already um, mentioned uh, this a little bit when I talked about Ciclovia, which is this program that happens every Sunday in Bogota from 7 a.m. until 2 p.m. And that is actually one of the, the first the, the first things that really surprised me when I first arrived in Bogota in 2008 was this program. And at the time, in 2008, it was not so known in other places but then it became increasingly referenced and replicated in many cities around the world. So I think that for, for me, but I also, I, I also think that for Paola, thinking about by cycling through Bogota and through Ciclovia has been an interesting and productive way of thinking about how, you know, the interesting thing about Ciclovia is that it changes. So you suddenly have, like a hundred miles of the city that are normally for car traffic are suddenly transformed are, are, and, and is for bicycles and pedestrians. And you don't need to buy, to build any new infrastructure. No? So I think that it, what is interesting about the replication of Ciclovia is that in a way it shows that it's not just about building infrastructure. Sometimes it's about just like changing the, the use of, of a particular infrastructure uh, and how that slight change of use can generate a really big um, consequence in the city. So I feel like part of the reason why Bogota is now uh, one of the city with uh, where more people uh, use the bike to go to work in Latin America, for instance, probably that cannot be explained without the existence of Ciclovia and the existence of a culture of bicycling. More so, I would say, than necessarily the existence of bike lanes, which in Bogota, they also exist. But obviously, they are not, they're not the best bike lanes. But I think the fact that there's all these different um, ways in which people use the bike uh, has been interesting. And so I think that in, when I think about a bicycle program that has had like a global outreach, I immediately think about Ciclovia. But that's not obviously the only one. You, we only have, for instance, bike share. The bike share programs are probably the other example. And that's... It's hard to pin down like where the origin of those are. I remember maybe the Paris one was one of the first ones, but I'm, I mean, I'm not really sure about the history of the old bike share programs, but I would say that, uh, yeah, these um, bike share programs are another example of local policies that, that have become global. The, scoot, the electric scooters became also in recent years something that has spread very fast. And I would say that that could be an example of how a policy 
might spread too fast before it's regulated and before we can really regulate it well. So I think that actually, if we think about scooters, electric scooters, and how, for instance, they could like people could use them and leave them anywhere in in the sidewalk, ended up like actually um, being bad for pedestrians, for instance. So 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 I think that we should also be very careful about wanting to sort of like make bicycle policies or electric scooter policies uh, really uh, to, to spread them out around the world without without thinking first about what we need, how, how should we regulate them, you know? So I think that, again, that's policy in a different way. So one thing's about these policies uh, becoming um, more common in many cities. And the other thing is that how can we also think, just because it's a global trend, that doesn't mean that it's solving our local um, problems, no? And I think that that's a very important thing for me and I think for policymakers that sometimes we get so obsessed with like, oh, if everyone is doing a bike share program, then we should do it too, no? It's almost like automatic and and it shouldn't be automatic. Like it should, like each policy, whether it's a bicycle policy, whether it's some, some sort of transportation policy, that's the solution but what's the problem we sometimes i feel like we are very eager to apply so global solutions that you know not necessarily always are going to respond to our local problems um i'd say that right and that was very well said sergio and i feel like on that um when we think about policy i feel like in general um policy now depending on like the demographic and the context policy could be generalized to other, you know, global communities. But when we think about policy, I think we should start at our local communities first, right? And to see how we could improve our, um, how we can improve the little, um, I guess you could say, hiccups in our community, I guess, or how we could improve our communities for the better. Um, but that's not to say that we can't go globally, right? And that's not to say that, you know, mm-hmm. other policymakers um, in, another, in another community can't use what we're implementing, right? So at the end of the day, it is about a social change and well-being. So whether that's globally or even locally, um, you know, it's okay. It, it's great either way. Just very briefly to comment on and, and to build on what Sergio was saying, we have all of these rankings, right? Like cycle cities ranking that sort of aim to establish what our cities, what we should aim for when we want to make mm-hmm. our cities safe uh, and inclusive for cycling. And again, I think these are like high abstractions that don't necessarily respond to local concerns, as Sergio was saying, but they are in- hugely influential, right? Like. What city doesn't want to be positioned on the global list of the best cities to cycle, right? So I think right. when we think about these policies, we also th- we also need to think about you know the political economy of urbanism, right? What does it mean mm-hmm. to be a cycling city and an attractive city and a city that makes it into all the rankings? And does that actually translate into good and safe and equitable conditions for cycling for people who live in these cities? Right, and agree on that point as well. Um, so before we end, um, do any of you guys have any uh, last like thoughts or insights? Um, no, I think we cover a lot of <laughs> topics. <laughs> no, I think we did too. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this yeah. was a great conversation and I'm very, yeah. very happy to have been part of it. And I look forward to hearing the final result. So thank you so much for each of you uh, for joining us here today on the Sport, Social Justice and Development podcast. We appreciate you, we appreciate you joining us and sharing your knowledge and expertise um, on the topic that we had discussed. Music for this podcast was provided by Lobo Loco and Broke for Free.